Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode of eGeos. This is a energy geoscience podcast. My name is Rochelle Kernan and today I have a really special guest. I have Dr. Ellie Articani. She is CEO and co-founder of Meta Innovation Technology out of Ottawa, Canada. Hi Ellie, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. It's a really, it's great to see you. And um, just to tell our audience a little side story. So I met you uh, on LinkedIn through uh, the AAPG Women's Network and you are the co-chair or the, is, do you have two people or just a chair, one chair of the, we SC- do have one chair. one chair. So Ellie is the leader of the SEG Women's Network. So it's, um, it's an honor to get to know her, to know someone else in our greater geoscience uh, community who is serving in a similar capacity that I have over the last year. So thank you so much for agreeing to meet with me, and um, I'm looking really looking forward to talking with you today. So to get started, um, can you tell us a little bit more about where you're from, where you grew up, and maybe one or two things that really influenced you? while you were growing up. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So uh, I was born and raised in Iran. Um, For some of your audience that may not know much about Iran, Iran um, is also sometimes referred to as Persia Mm -hmm. as a country. Yeah. As a country in Southwestern Asia. And uh, it has about 82 million uh, in population. Um, The country is one of the most you know, diverse countries that you can imagine in terms of history, culture, and language. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I had conversations before with Americans who um, who think that Iran is just a desert in Middle East and everyone has a camel in their backyard. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny, right? Um, so we do have a desert and it, it has the highest temperature recorded ever. Mm-hmm. Um, the country's climate uh, ranges from subtropical to subpolar. Um, and that's all thanks to the gorgeous, really, really gorgeous geological structure um, in Iran. Um, so, yeah, so that's about Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a lower middle class family uh, with some bankruptcy in their history. Um, our home and my surrounding was um, kind of like very radically male-dominated and very conflicted um, in terms of, you know, um, anything that you can think of, including religion and, and political views, uh, which are always the worst kind of arguments that can happen around you. Um, there were always arguments, but these arguments never ended with any actions to improve anybody's life. Um, and I think that's what influenced me the most. Um, I kind of learned early on that I own my own destiny. Mm-hmm. And if I want to improve my chances um, and everybody's chances, well, I have to study and work hard and I have to be resourceful. Mm-hmm. And um, if nothing was changing around me, um, I had to be the spark of that change yeah. that I want to see in the environment. Um, and I think that's that's where I was influenced the most, I think, growing up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. So at what point did you decide that you were going to go to school? Did you go to school in Iran or did you decide to do 
uh, graduate studies, undergraduate studies, everything abroad. And um, what are your degrees? And could you tell us a story about your career path? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's actually a funny story. Uh, I always had a knack for art, mm -hmm. believe it or not. But I was a really good student with A pluses in physics and math and chemistry. And there was no way my dad would let me go to art school. Like, there was no way. Mm -hmm. So I got into air sciences program at University of Espanol back in Iran. Okay. And I was one of the really good schools, like, in terms of geosciences. Um, and my dad's plan was that I'm going to get a BSc and I'm going to become a teacher because that was what women were supposed to do, right? Yeah. A, a very safe job in a safe environment, dealing with innocent kids. Um, that's what, what they are, you know, born to be. Yep. Um, the funny thing was that two years in the program, and I was, I was not impressed with their sciences, mm -hmm. um, and that is the truth. Um, mm -hmm. I felt like I'm just memorizing geologic times and names of minerals uh, to get A's and pass past the courses, right? Uh -huh. Until I took this course in the third year called Formation Evaluation, and I was just hooked. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that, you know, I could understand the subsurface with a bunch of giggles, um, aka ge geological and geophysical logs, mm -hmm. just blew my mind. And, and from that moment, I knew that I wanted to be part of the energy sector and specifically oil and gas. Um, I mean, Iran is the OPEC's second larger, largest exporter mm -hmm. and uh, the fourth, fourth largest oil producer. So um, I chose to go the opposite direction of what my dad imagined to happen. Um, I chose to go to one of the toughest and male-dominated industries, um, especially in Iran. Um, right after my BSc, I was I was only one of the I was one of the twelve people across the country um, in two thousand six who got admitted into petroleum geology master program at University of Tehran. Mm -hmm. uh, and in two thousand nine, I immigrated to Canada to continue my studies in geophysics. Um, over the years until now, I I worked both for ENP operators and oil field service companies until December 2017. And that's where I started my own venture um, called Meta with a good bunch. Uh, Meta is a software as a service company to merge digital technologies into energy and mining industries. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, something came to mind when you were talking about the dream that your dad had for you. I, I have to say, I feel the same way <laughs> that kind of happened yeah. to be. Yes. <laughs> I, it wasn't so much a spoken thing, but it was more of an unspoken thing. There's this expectation, like you had to go to college, you're going to figure out how to pay for it. And then I just naturally was like, Oh, well, I'll just become a high school teacher. That's all that was like, in my sphere yeah. of possibility. When I first went to college, that's like the only thing that I even considered. And then once I was in school and I started being exposed um, to some geology courses and through that I realized that, oh wow, they offered these trips all over the US and you can travel and there's this like international component. That's really when I was like, oh wait, 
I don't have to be a teacher, like a high school teacher. Um, <laughs> Mind-blowing. And what's funny now is when I, you know, sometimes my parents get upset that I don't live at home or in the same state or even part of the same, you know, part of the U.S. as they do. I always have to fly to see them. You know, they kind of get upset with me. And it's just like I get... I'm like, you know, you created this monster, <laughs> me, like, you said you had to go to school, college, and they didn't go to college, so they, I don't think they understood, like, you know, you can really have your horizons, horizons expanded through that college experience, so yeah. anyways, I, I can relate, I know culturally probably totally different, but in some capacity, it's like, yeah, I kind of went through the same thing, <laughs> they're just like, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. I, I totally get it, and you know, they, the thing between the parents and children is that there is always like this gap of generation, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't really see the things as valuable that we see them. Yeah. Um, either way, you know, they, they want the best for their kids, obviously, mm -hmm. but um, it's kind of funny how sometimes we turn to rebels and we do the opposite thing. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. It's, it's really good. And I, I think that, you know, I think going forward for the future generation, I hope that things are a little bit easier for them, that they feel like they can break out out of these traditional molds if they want to um, and don't have to feel like a certain way about it. Like have it just be a very natural thing. Um, yeah, that would that would be my hope at least. Um, so you had already talked about um, that you're a geophysicist and you're in the energy sector. Could you be a little bit more specific about um, what exactly you're doing now because you're running your own company and maybe something that is specific to your field that you really, really like or enjoy from either like a technical perspective or even a people perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, the, the company uh, Meta is mostly focused on digital technologies. Uh, we do have two products. One is for increasing return on investment on human resources. Mm -hmm. So it's a simulation-based technical training platform uh, where we actually never had such a product before in our industry. Um, and the other one is on the side of AI technologies to capitalize on, on legacy data and data sets that are sitting, you know, in our, on our machine somewhere, mm -hmm. collecting dust, even though we spend millions and millions of dollars <laughs> acquiring them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this is what we do at Meta, and I'm really passionate about, you know, what future really holds for just not oil and gas, but also energy in general. One thing that I believe, though, is that, you know, there's all these conversations about energy transition. And, I mean, it's it's really good that the companies and people are thinking about this and they are taking actions. It's awesome. But the shift from fossil fuels to reno renewables or green energy is not going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And we are, as we are building this infrastructure to make green energy generation economically viable, because that's the biggest hurdle really here, um, we have to have an eye on how to optimize our current processes. Mm -hmm. um, how do we make sure that if you're drilling a well, you know, in you know, a wolf, the wolf camp formation in Permian, we get the most out of that well without refracking it, right? Because these are these are the things that 
can really reduce the capital cost and increase the amount of money that can go toward new infrastructures for new type of energies that can be produced. Sure. Um, and I think that's where I think ENPs, especially the majors, are kind of like turning their head and they are thinking about, hey, you know, there is an opportunity there that we can take advantage of. And this is why digital technologies are exponentially growing within within the energy sector. Um, it doesn't matter if it's green energy or fossil fuels, really, because at the end of the day, that's how we get the most out of what we actually do. Um, so, I mean, I am super passionate about digital transformation, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest with you, I think pandemic is kind of like helped people <laughs> to open their eyes. Yeah. And I understand that there is so much value in digital technologies, and this is where they are supposed to double down their energy and effort mm-hmm. and capitalize on, because the future is connected. The yeah. future is digital. Mm-hmm. And the products that are built um, in a way that they are digital by default have a much more higher success rate yeah. in general. Mm-hmm. So if they are incorporated right now, in the companies, the future could be way more optimized than what they have right now. Um, and that is one of the things that I think it, it's it's really awesome to see that companies are recognizing it. We have clients, you know, from Premium Basin to, to like international clients like in UK that they really understand the value of our algorithms helping them to get as much as possible out of their data so they optimize their completion programs um, to do better mm-hmm. uh, for the future projects. Um, so I, I don't know if I answered all of your question because there was two parts in there and I got kind of sidetracked with the digital technologies kind of thing because I'm really passionate about it. Yeah, no, you absolutely answered it. You kind of already have spoke to it saying that the future is digital. How do you see that sort of transforming over the next year post-COVID and then maybe in five or 10 years? I'm sure that in some way that it's sort of the digital revolution is now and it's here to stay. But what, what is next after that? Do you have any speculation or any ideas about the future? I think there are, I think there are two things that they would, they would really exponentially grow over the next couple of years. One is capitalization on AI augmented analytics. Um, We talked a little bit about data, um, you know, in our industry and in general, like in geosciences and geophysics, Mm -hmm. especially, we're like, I always call ourselves data hoarders. Mm -hmm. We really are data. We we really kill for some good data. (laughs) So we get the data and then we work with it. And after a while, the new data set comes in and we toss the previous data set and we go after the new data. And this is literally the story of life for majority of the EMPs, especially exploration and production companies that are out there. Um, and that's where, you know, they can do more with their data with the help of the cheaper computation power, uh, which enables algorithms to capitalize on what they already acquired, what data sets they had, but also predict the future. 
Mm-hmm. I think the prediction of the future is something that we have not done a really good job mm-hmm. at it. We always focus on current and what the current processes, but we don't do a lot of, even though you know, we're, we're geoscientists and we're geophysicists, we don't do a lot of prediction what happens in the future. I've seen, you know, the the developments that happen without even looking at, you know, adjacent paths or assets to see what happened in the previous projects, like how can we do better on the next project? And I think that the capitalization on AI augmented analytics is going to enable that. That is one thing. The other thing that I think is happening is the shift from product-centric platforms to customer-centric platforms. And with that, what I mean is, the software that you use on a daily basis. Just think about how many softwares you use per day. <laughs> There's so many. It doesn't matter if it's on the shape of an app, if it's Netflix, if whatever. If a digital platform is a software that you're using, and if you think about it, you can see how much they change from product-centric to customer-centric mm-hmm. and how much user experience matters. Yeah. Um, you know, you as a user, if there are 10 apps, let's say there are 10 apps for meditation, the one that you are going to choose is the one that you have the best experience with. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's the cheapest, if it's the most expensive one, if it's with whoever company, you will use the one that to you as a user is the most user-friendly app. And this is what's going to happen for all of the software that we are using on our professional um, side of things, mm-hmm. uh, and people are going to start thinking about accessibility. You want a software that is accessible to you anywhere that you are, as long as that you are connected and hooked up to internet. You're not working with dongles and licenses that need to be installed on computers, and like that is not going to happen. Like I'm pretty sure that in five years we will laugh at times <laughs> that we had to actually install a license on our machine because we wanted to run Petra <laughs> or whatever, right? It's just, it's, it's just going to extinct um, by time. And I think that's where we are heading. And this is, this is the moment. This is, this is an ex- exciting time to be in because we are at the verge of this transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that that's my thought on that. That's awesome. That's amazing. I just ha- you just blew my mind. It was so great. <laughs> Thank you. That's very inspiring. So, what would you say is your dream job or role? Um, and are you still building towards that dream job, or are you already living it? Oh, that is an awesome question. Uh, I'm living it. I I love my job. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, well, I, I, you know, I told you before, I, I worked for, you know, as an R&D geophysicist and also as petroleum geologist in multiple companies. And to be honest with you, um, quitting my job and starting a business was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is that maybe entrepreneurship is kind of like in my blood, but at the same time, I feel like it's super empowering when you can actually make change in things with making decisions and making it happen. You don't really wait for others to do anything. You just, you take the charge and you're like, hey, I'm visioning this product is going to solve your problem. I'm going to build this product and I'm going to offer it to you. 
and you can see how it's solving your problem and makes your life better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the part that is very empowering. Um, beside that, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, as someone who's building a tech company, you get to work with a lot of talented people. Yeah. You get to have advisors on your side that are super talented. They grow companies from you know, a couple of thousands of dollars in revenue to millions and millions of dollars of revenue. And they exist, exhibit from those companies with, you know, a huge wealth, not just for themselves, but also for everyone else who was part of that team, uh, part of the company as they were building the company. And to me, that's just very inspiring when you see how the world can change if you actually have a vision and you really work hard toward it Mm -hmm. I really love my role um, at Meta Um, I don't think that I would have done it in any other way Mm -hmm. Um, I was really thinking when I was working as an R&D geophysicist I was thinking to go back to school and do um, MBA program because I was really interested in commercializing algorithms because (laughs) I was the person who was sitting there and writing the algorithm but I was like pushed back when it came to how to commercialize that algorithm and how to get it to work in the real world. Um, and I think that's the part that I was really passionate about. And I had, you know, the CTO and the founder of the company that I was working for uh, at the time, he was like, you know, if you want to do a business, just go start one. Mm-hmm. Don't do an MBA. You already have three degrees in universities. You spend like 10 years of your life in universities just go do it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The worst case scenario, you fail. But you learn mm-hmm. throughout that experience. You literally learn by doing. And I mean, that's that was the best advice ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have never regretted, you know, even, even for one minute, uh, the decision that I made. And I think a lot of the failures and successes that we are looking at uh, throughout our, our time at Meta until this point, um, they are all equally valuable to me, to be honest with you. And I think that's what matters, really. Absolutely. Yeah, so you had mentioned that, you know, not being afraid to fail, that that is, like, the best advice that was given to you. Do you have any other uh, advice or anything else to tell our listeners um, who are maybe considering heading off into entrepreneurial path or really anything? Do you have any advice for them? Um, yeah, I mean, there there are two things that I think is really important and it kind of differentiates between successful people and not much successful people with society standards in mind. Um, number one is that um, how much grit you have. So mm-hmm. how far do you hold on to your court? Um, I think the, the thing that is really important is to, to not give up. Um, when we are giving up, we're just closing the door, right? And nothing is going to happen behind the closed door. Um, so not giving up and having the grit is one thing. And I think the second thing is to be risk takers um, mm-hmm. and open to opportunities. You know, I always think, you know, I lost my both parents to cancer and they weren't as old, really. Um, and one thing that I noticed through through the tragedy was how short life can be yeah, and how much little time we have on this earth to make the most out of it. Yeah. So why are we not 
taking risks. You know, what, what is the worst case scenario that can happen? Really nothing. Um, so, I mean, we just have to be open to opportunities and, and say yes more than we say no. Um, I think that that would be one of the, one of the key factors. Yeah. I, I, uh, I totally agree with you. It's, and just what goes along with that, at least for me is don't worry about what other people are going to think. Oh yeah. <laughs> like that, I think exactly. so many people get caught up with that. I see it all the time. Um, very subtle with some people more obvious with others, but I feel like that causes people a lot of pain when you're always stuck and worried about, you know, what is your parents going to think? What is this person going to think? It's like, no, what do you, what is authentic to you? Um, and how can you make yourself happy? Yeah, liberating yourself from, you know, everyone else's view, it's it's huge. Like, yeah. you live your life. Nobody else lives your life. So make your own decisions and stand by them. Yeah. Exactly. So using that sort of theme, how do you personally maintain your happiness and your success? Do you have any um routines or activities or I mean it could be literally anything that you use uh just to keep yourself going and happy um well there there are things that are more tangible and there are things that are not as tangible but that's a brilliant question um I think that uh this happiness or success it all are maintaining the happiness and success it all comes from our perspective mm -hmm. Uh, there are people that define success with always winning, like winning a job position, winning a bid on a house, winning the lottery, <laughs> yeah. which is all nice. Like everybody likes that, but you won't feel the joy as much if you haven't lost anything, if you didn't lose job positions, bids and lotteries, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think maintaining happiness and success is with knowing that you're doing your best that you can at all times you're giving it all right 100 mm -hmm. percent um that you're satisfied with your efforts and that's what i personally do mm -hmm. and i think that um it would be good like i always suggest that to everybody else around me um and it is indeed liberating when you feel like you know you could have not done better than this in this specific situation about a specific matter Mm -hmm. um, I think these are the perspective part is not a tangible side of maintaining happiness, but it honestly is 90% of the solution. Mm -hmm. The other 10% is to, I don't know, we sometimes we actually have NAC sessions. So, you know, the CEO and CTO of the company, they sit down and they nag about things that are going wrong. <laughs> and even that, you know, maybe it's five minutes or 10 minutes every week or something. But that's helpful because you feel like, okay, it's not just me that I'm frustrated with the specific things. You know, my counterpart or my colleague has the same issues, right? Yeah. But in a different level or on a different topic. Um, and maybe just someone who listens to you, it makes you feel a little bit better about, about the situation that you are in. Um, you know, other things that I can, I can name, honestly, um, one of the big things is that I always get this question from people, how do you volunteer so much? How do you make the time to do this? Like you're a busy entrepreneur, like how many hours per day do you work? <laughs> and 
I mean, I do work a lot of hours, but at the same time, the volunteer work that I do, I'm really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. So if I can actually make a difference and if I can make something happen, it makes me internally happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may not sound very, you know, um, as nice as sitting in a beach in Hawaii, but it's a volunteer work that is actually creating change. And I love to see that. Mm-hmm. I want to see that. And that makes me happy. So, you know, for people who are thinking that they are bored and they, you know, they don't, they're not getting anywhere. Maybe it's time to get out there, network, do some volunteer work on the things that you're really passionate about. And you feel that happiness. Mm-hmm. I promise you. I I completely agree with you. Because um, I, I guess the happiness of connecting with other people and um, helping people and changing things, that happiness will kind of carry me through some of the dark periods where I'm really struggling with, you know, X, Y, and Z, whether it's directly related to maybe changing something or maybe something like technical that I've been working on and I just can't figure something out or, you know, whatever it may be. But I I can definitely see that. I, I feel like I, I'm... I need that component part of my life. And that's where getting into like a whole nother discussion, I get frustrated sometimes because a lot of times those like volunteer activities aren't necessarily calculated into people's performance or their, you know, their value differently in our society. And to me, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I just think that like it should be valued the same overall if there is a way to do that because it is such a tangible thing and it giving back I think really generates opportunity for other people and it it's like karma what goes around comes around it's like this really good good way to keep like a healthy connected community so yeah thank you absolutely yeah well it was really nice talking to you today Ellie I'm really excited for you you have such a bright future I love seeing everything that you do online and social media and Thank you so much for, you know, meeting with me and having a chat on EGOs. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Sounds great. Bye-bye.